Welcome to the Purposeful Planning Podcast, where you'll gain tangible, practical suggestions to help you transform and elevate your practice. Our content is for both seasoned professionals working with complex family systems and those just entering the field. These podcasts will also be valuable for family leaders who are dedicated to helping individual family members find their pathway to flourishing lives and strengthening the relational fabric of the family. Welcome and thank you for joining us. And now your host. Hi, everyone. I'm Deborah Goldstein, co-dean of philanthropy for the Purposeful Planning Institute. I have my own philanthropy advising firm, Enlightened Philanthropy, and I'm joined today by Richard Marker of the Institute for Wise Philanthropy. This is a follow-up conversation to the conversation I had with Janelle Turner about why one should work with a philanthropy advisor and also when to bring them in. And today in our conversation with Richard, we'll be talking more about how do you actually choose a philanthropy advisor. So thank you so much for joining me today, Richard. Pleasure. Um, the One of the ways we like to start our conversations in these podcasts is by asking you, what is your purposeful journey? How did you arrive at this work? Uh, okay, well, I'll try to give you the shortest possible answer because I know we want to get on to the subject. But um, uh, the, the long answer, which is I'm not going to give you the long answer, but the long answer is that I actually had a grandfather who was a philanthropist. Uh, and uh, it didn't that didn't really resonate as much with me until I actually got in the business. Uh, but I realized that on some level that was formative. Uh, but uh, but and the shorter answer is that this is my fifth career. Uh, I began as an academic. I was an executive in the nonprofit sector. I did some for-profit uh, strategy consulting. Uh, found myself in Berlin the day the wall came down, uh, which is a, we don't have time to go into that story, and I can't take full credit. But um, uh, but nevertheless, that kind of changed my life, as you can imagine, uh, and went back into the nonprofit sector, started doing a lot of international things. Uh, and uh, not too much after that uh, was uh, uh, tapped to head a, a fairly substantial uh, private foundation. It was a corporate foundation that was still by a company, still controlled by the major, by a family. Uh, That foundation closed in 2002. And uh, since that time, actually since even while I was still heading the foundation, I've uh, been uh, an an educator of of, uh, philanthropists, first at NYU, now at the University of Pennsylvania, and also through our own institute around the world. We've We've educated through formal programs of one sort or another, several thousand philanthropists and foundation executives. Uh, our The Institute also does a, a, a very specific um, b- boutique uh, kind of advisory work strictly related to either uh, evaluation or strategy. We don't manage anything that'll be relevant in our conversation. We don't do any management. We don't take retainer contracts. Uh, it, it's really a very specific boutique firm. Uh, and uh, it, 
And that's important to mention, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think. It's important to mention because uh, there are lots of people that call themselves philanthropy advisors, but that can mean a lot of different things. And so I kind of make it a point to emphasize to people not only what my, our business model is, what our approach is, uh, what we don't do, what we don't try to do, and even what our financial model is. So we, uh, uh, we talk about those things. But for me, it's been a very defining part of the last quarter century. Uh, and, uh, and and frankly, I believe in the importance of volunteerism, generosity, and philanthropy uh, as a universal phenomenon. Uh, I, I, I do things all over the world, and uh, there is no society, no culture I've come to where there is not some form of volunteerism of people utilizing private resources for public good. Uh, and uh, to be a part of that, to help people make good decisions, to help them uh, make the world better because of our volunteerism is something I take very seriously and cherish. Mm, incredible. Thank you so much for, for sharing the nutshell version and um, and bringing your wisdom and experience um, to, to bear today. You know, we, we will be getting into the factors that one needs to consider when choosing a philanthropy advisor. And, um, and there are so many factors, as you've already alluded to. I'm wondering if there's one that you would pick out of, of the bunch to consider that feels like the most important or the top priority for um, a couple or a family to consider when making this choice? Or a, or a foundation. Or a foundation, uh, exactly. I, I think when the, 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 the most common element for, uh, of the people that I talk to over the years, whether they become personal clients or not, is that there is something, there's a question that needs to be answered. Uh, it, it can be, a, and that question can be precipitated by positive change or negative change. Somebody can get married, uh, somebody can have kids, somebody can sell a business. So that can be a, a, a positive uh, a, a change or somebody can die or there can be other kinds of reversals. But one way or another, uh, the, 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 the thing that sends people to philanthropy advisors on the whole is there's something changed that, that they need an answer to. And as I say, that that can have to do with how long the foundation exists, or whether to whether there should be a succession plan, uh, or what the priorities or the focus should be. There's all sorts of things that it may be, but but until one is clear what the question is, it's a little bit difficult to somehow say who's going to be the right person uh, or or the right firm. I mean, it's not, sometimes it's an individual, sometimes it's a big firm, but but until that, uh, until you've gone through the process of figuring out what question do you really need answered, uh, th then you can really, but until that happens, you don't really know who the right, uh, who the combination of skills, right combination of of, uh, of personalities uh, and uh, competencies that are, are going to be most useful for you. Wow, I think that's such a great, that's such a great point, Richard, is that you you need to be clear as a family on what that question, family, foundation, um, you know, c couple, individual of what questions you need answered, because that really helps then um, you to get the right answers that you need for all these other the, all these other things. You talked yeah. about. Um, I'm going to interrupt yes, you, though, if I sure. may. I don't mean to be rude. I do yeah. want to say that doesn't mean that the that the that the potential client has always have, has necessarily figured it out correctly. Yes. Very often, 
as we all know, and anybody who's watching this uh, or listening to this is, is going to agree, sometimes people think there's a precipitating question, uh, but in fact, underneath it, there's a set of questions that haven't been articulated, or they're not willing to yet articulate, or it's too, or or uh, or, or it raises too many uh, uh, family challenges or, or personal challenges to articulate. But what, one of the roles of a, of an advisor is to get to what the real question is. But usually, there's a precipitating question that leads to the discussion. Yes. Thank you so much for raising that that distinction, because it, it is true. They often do come to us thinking it's one, it's one question, and it may be, but we may need to answer some other questions before we can get to, to that one, right? Very good. So tell me, you did talk, um, you did touch on this in the beginning about um, the business model of a philanthropy advisor, and how does that play into this? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, li- I like to tell the story of, uh, of people of, of, over the years when people have told me that they've had frustrations uh, working with philanthropy advisors. And by the way, you know, I, I one of my personal bugaboos is I like to call us philanthropy advisors, not philanthropic advisors. And the simple reason is everybody should be philanthropic, but the subject about which your advisors is philanthropy. That's a personal bugaboo. It's a grammatical <laughs> error, but okay. Um, uh, but let me come back to that. When, when I talk to people about their either their satisfaction with or dissatisfaction with the people whom they may have worked with in the past, invariably it's because they didn't have a clarity ahead of time. There's one of two things that happens. One is they didn't have clarity as to what the um, assumptions and or business model of, of, of the advisor is. Um, and and the and, and and later on we can we if we come to it even what the what the methodology is but but what the, but if it turns out that they that there's not an understanding of it uh, that often can lead to some uh, some uh, some unhappiness or discomfort For, and I like to give the example of us um, uh, we we as I said very quickly we don't take retainer contracts which means that if we come in as an in as an advisor. There, the positive is that people know that they're going to get independent inf- uh, suggestions because we have nothing at stake in what we propose. And we do try to help them figure out how to implement it. But if somebody is really looking for somebody who's going to be a long-term uh, part-time employee, as it were, which many philanthropy advisors are, we're not the right people to talk to because we're not going to be doing the management kinds of things. If somebody needs somebody to prepare a board packets, uh, that's not, we're not the right people for that. So understanding the business model and how we charge and what our, what our long-term relationship is, is going to make all the difference as to whether you you're, you're choosing us for the, uh, for the right reasons. Many people don't know that there are folks like us around who really will only take a project-related strategy work. Uh, sometimes people will say to me, how come we didn't know about people like you before? But you know what? Okay, it's okay. And, and that doesn't mean every philanthropy advisor is, is pushing it. What we have, what they have to be careful of, though, the reason I push so hard in asking for the to clarify the business model is so that it, get, it gets the potential advisor to articulate exactly what their approach is and what their intended relationship is. And then if it turns out that the client says, you know what, that doesn't sit right with me, or that doesn't sound exactly what like I'm looking for, or conversely, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I met you. That's exactly what I've been looking for. The, the degree to which that's articulated up front works better on both sides. 
Agreed. Agreed. Yes. Yes. I was speaking with somebody the other day and, and explaining what I do. And they said, oh, so you want your clients to become self-sufficient? And I said, yes, I do. You know, like that is an intention here that they can do that on their own. Talk to me about, um, you also referred to, I, I believe, to um, maybe somebody needing a, a team of advisors versus an individual advisor. So sure. talk about the uh, difference in that. Right. A, a, a good example is a, a very good friend of mine who sold a, a, quite a substantial business. I mean, he's not around right now, but uh, sold a substantial business and somebody actually I would have breakfast with once a week. So somebody I knew quite well. And um, uh, he was setting up a foundation and he chose one of the very large philanthropy advisory firms. And I asked, I asked him why he made that choice. I didn't say, why didn't you choose me? I said, why did you choose, make that choice? And he said, it's very simple. I have, I have grandchildren living in all over the United States. And I want, the, I want to have a firm that's going to be able to deal with them directly over a period of time. Uh, and so that I needed a firm that's going to have various offices. And you know what? That was a thoughtful response because he really wanted to set up a foundation that was going to outlast him, it was going to at least last into his grandchildren. And he was smart enough to recognize that they were going to need some of the professional support that a large firm could bring to bear. On the other hand, however large his family had been, if it turns out that he had been an earlier stage and all he really wanted, not all he wanted, what he really wanted was that an opportunity to really think through what his strategy was going to be, then now, and, and it was at a prior stage, then he didn't need, he would not necessarily have needed a big multi-office firm like that. Uh, and some more boutique firms might have been appropriate for him, but it was very thoughtful in his part. And he could see, and, and he, and he really had a very good reason for wanting, uh, the, uh, the, the bench strength of, uh, of, of, a, of a large firm. Uh, but many people, you know, if it's if it's a single, if it's a couple, uh, or or maybe people are in one location, or there's a different set of questions, one has to be careful. You know, sometimes if you contract with a very large firm, you may be assigned somebody who's very junior, uh, or 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 the way in which the pricing uh, is, is established uh, goes beyond what really is necessarily called for in the work that you have to do. So there's trade-offs, and it's really important to for a potential client. Uh, to to make the determination, what do they? Uh, what are you really looking for? What, uh, and, and at what stage of your thinking uh, do you need this advisor? Uh, and by the way, Deborah, I fully endorse that people should be self sufficient, but not everybody wants to be self sufficient. But yes. that, but what they need at the end isn't the same. Some people want a program officer. Somebody wants somebody somebody else to run back offices. Uh, somebody, some some families may want people to do uh, site visits for them. Others may you know. And so that there are all there's a range of ways in which people can be supported over a period of time. But until they've understood that they have these options and they understood where that fits with their own personality, with their own with their own family culture, they may be pushed into willy nilly. Innocently pushed into making decisions that really are not going to satisfy what their long-term needs are about. If self-sufficiency is the way to go, great. Yes. Yes, I understand, and there, and that's the that's the thing is philanthropy advisors work in all these different ways and can meet all these different needs, right? Sure. And 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 yes, in some case, I do want my clients to be self-sufficient, and in other cases, I realize they need 
a little bit more handholding along the way. And that's just the nature of that relationship. Talk a little bit more about um, if there is any more to add about experience when it comes to a philanthropy advisor. Right. Very, very good question. So let me fo- let me focus that on a couple of areas. Uh, uh, so the the, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is what I call the one trick ponies. Um, and, and there are two kinds of one trick ponies. And, and um, uh, one is where somebody has comes from a very prestigious background, has worked in a foundation, maybe one of the famous foundations, has had a very important role there and developed a, a very credible reputation within that foundation and decides to go off on his or her own. Uh, what, what often happens is that the experience of having worked in that one foundation may be perfect, but has nothing to do with yours, your situation. You, you know, you, you may be much smaller. You may have a very different focus. You may have a very different set, ideological uh, set of assumptions. And it was to assume that the internal uh, experiential database of that, that person with that experience is automatically applicable to you uh, is, 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 can, can be uh, a, fa- a false assumption. So, so in that sense, you if you are going to work with somebody, I, I'm not putting that down, but make sure it's aligned with what your needs are. Yeah. The other one trick pony is uh, is is the the example I like to give is you know uh, that we we know the expression uh, to a hammer everything is a nail, uh, and uh, we've all met advisors, consultants, uh, and, and people who have a particular methodology, and as far as they're concerned. Everything is going to fit into that uh, approach, and they're all. And, and and doesn't matter what your question is. There, whether it has to do with metrics, or whether it has to do with methodology, or has to do with what uh, uh, outcome measures, whatever you want to talk about, everything is going to fit there. Well, the truth is that people have different sets of questions with different sets of needs at different stages of their philanthropy, and one has to, and, and that's why it's so important to 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 ask questions about what their approach is. Uh, uh, Marilla, who's both my, my wife and, and and partner, who's an expert in program evaluation, likes to talk about in the in the American Evaluation Association, there's, I don't know how many, but dozens of different valid evaluation approaches. People often assume that you do an evaluation, there's only uh, one thing that's going to be measured, what the numbers may be or what the outcome is going to be. Turns out there's a wide variety of different approaches. And it's very important for a, uh, for, for a, a, a potential client to understand what this what what the underlying approach and uh, uh, methodology is of of the uh, of the client. The last thing I want to say is it depends. It depends what you want to accomplish, uh, and so, so I've reached a stage of life where people refer to me. I, I, I've decided to embrace as an elder. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I was recently introduced on an international uh, webinar I was doing as an eminence breeze. So I decided to in- embrace that, I guess, if you get to a certain stage. But that's that's kind of relevant uh, because that experience means that I can sometimes have conversations uh, with, with a founder, with a senior member of a family or of the foundation that can be very 
very difficult for somebody who's substantially younger than I am, and may even be difficult for members of the of their own family or uh, or of the staff that are working for them. Uh, I have that. In, I, there's an ability. You have to do it carefully. You have to do it with, with a, a degree of skill. But the fact is that that level of experience can uh, can be there when I can sometimes say things. Somebody like me. I don't mean only me, but somebody like me can say things to somebody who really needs to hear it, but nobody's yet comfortable to say it. On the other hand, there are other times when different kinds of experience are appropriate. Uh, I, in, in, in the scheme of the world in which we, we live, I'm a, I'm a, a straight, uh, white, uh, older male. Well, in, in a family that has m- many generations, I may serve a useful role, but not a sufficient role. And it may be important to have people on the team who, uh, whether I can relate to them or not is beside the point. They may not feel that they can relate to me. And so it may be important to have somebody on the team who is uh, who is a woman or depending on the family or is of color or, uh, or, or substantially younger, whatever that may be, um, recognizing that, the, uh, that a, a three-generation family, which is very, is very diverse, may need to have different personae with whom they're going to be comfortable comfortable talking. So so experience matters, but the relevant experience is what matters the most. That's so great. That's so great. Um, and, you know, I'm also thinking about, of course, PPI is this community that is made up of so many different advisors. And so um, that that come to these families of wealth with different experience. So talk to me about the collaboration of a philanthropy advisor with other sure. family uh, advisors. You know, well, well, that's that's great. And one of the things that I really hope comes out of this series is that we develop a methodology for philanthropy advisors really truly being a part of the professional uh, uh advisory teams for for families for family offices uh for family foundations uh, it's tricky and i want to talk about why it's tricky and why sometimes that makes sense and sometimes it doesn't make sense so i'm going to talk about a situation where it may not make sense uh i was uh, i was a community foundation not in the area where i live but, um brought me out to give some talks and to do some workshops uh, one of the very wealthy uh, f- funders in the community wanted to meet with me privately uh, when I uh, when I met with him, he the first thing he did is he said, "Oh, the community foundation is going to get its money; they don't have to worry." It was only I think it was about five million dollars or so. He promised them they didn't have to worry about it. But what he said to me is, "I need to talk to you privately." So because you don't live in this community, and in this community everybody ha- has their hands in my pocket, and frankly, I'm a lot richer than anybody knows. And I and I'm not even comfortable talking to my lawyer about this, who doesn't have a full understanding of my wealth. And the person who manages my local money has no doesn't really understand at all. And I need to talk to somebody about my philanthropy who doesn't have his hand in my pocket uh, in the community where I'm living. So that's a classic example where being an outsider independent was exactly what this particular client wanted. Um, uh, on the other hand, there are other times when uh, when the opposite would be the case, where a trust and estate attorney who may understand their client very well, but not, doesn't necessarily have the expertise in what does it mean to talk about a philanthropy looking two or three generations down the road, uh, or may not have the experience in anticipating uh, the philanthropic implications of a major gift 
only the legal implications of a major gift or setting up a foundation or that donor advised fund or the LLC uh, or or whatever it may be. And so that there are times when uh, when being a part of the uh, the team can make a difference. And then I'll give a, a positive example of that, if I may. Um, uh, I, I, somebody who had taken a course with me, had not been a client, called me from uh, their uh, from from the, uh, their lawyer's office, uh, about to sign a contract with their alma mater to give a major building to that alma mater, and at the last minute before signing, asked if I would come take a look at it and be a part, and as it were, functionally be a part of the the team. And sure enough, it was a it was there were not that many issues. There were no financial issues. There were the naming was all there all taken care of. There were all sorts of things that these perfectly fine lawyers totally overlooked. Not a, for example, an example that we now know better. This is already a few years ago. People would probably think about this today. What happens if somebody comes along and offers more money to the university than this person was giving to have the building named after him? Now, today, I suspect the lawyer would ask that question. But this goes back a bunch of years, and the lawyer never thought to ask that question. The lawyer never thought to ask the question, who's responsible for cleaning the building or putting new HVAC systems in uh, five years from now or 10 years from now? There, there were all these land or not. Things I'm just giving a couple of examples. The lawyer's office was that was a classic case where bringing me in as a partner made the client have a better arrangement. The legal stuff was handled uh, more completely because of my involvement, and the philanthropy stuff was handled better because I was brought in. And and that's a I think a positive example. And I only wish that happened more frequently uh, uh, than it does. I also want to be sensitive. I want to put on the table a recognition that's very important because I know in PPI, there's lots of people who are lawyers and lots of people who are wealth advisors. And I want to recognize and put, uh, that, um, that there are legal uh, implications to your taking a client uh, that are different from what it means for us as a philanthropy advisor. And so when I come in, I can say, I want the entire family or the entire foundation to be my client. It's very difficult for a, a lawyer to be able to make that requirement. Ultimately, the way the law works is there's a specific client and the, and, the, and the lawyer may be sensitive to it. But ultimately, if the client wants something, it may be very difficult for that lawyer to somehow say, but I don't think that's the best decision. Um, and, and so I want to be I, I, I don't want to be too harsh about the distinction, but it's one of the reasons that when there's philanthropy discussions, there's so much value in bringing a, an experienced philanthropy advisor into the picture because there are ways in which we can have conversations and discussions uh, in a way that can uh, counterbalance some of the legal restrictions uh, that a wealth advisor uh, or a lawyer uh, can confront. So to, the, the, to end where I began, I really do hope that one of the things that emerges from this um, PPI series is that there are some uh, an expansion of examples where we can talk about very effective uh, partnerships uh, that uh, that really build on what the theme of the PPI is about, but to inc include uh, experienced philanthropy advisors from the get go. Thank you, thank you so much, Richard, and and that's my hope as well. And I can't believe how fast our conversation has gone, but I I would be remiss um, if I didn't ask this last question before we go, which is about um accreditation and you know this field is still um sort of a growing evolving field um so could you speak um in, in our last few moments here about accreditation 
Our, our field, the field of philanthropy in general, and philanthropy advisory is, is just one part of it, um, is the only field that has no uh, uh, barrier to entry. Um, if you want to hang up your shingle and say you're a philanthropy advisor and somebody wants to hire you, you don't have to demonstrate that you know the law. You don't have to demonstrate that you know philanthropy history. You don't have to demonstrate that uh, that you know what the ethics are or, or best practices uh, or, or a whole series of other kinds of things. Uh, fundraisers have to do so. Uh, you know, every profession has it for a variety of reasons. Um, our field has not yet uh, gotten there. Now, be careful in listening to me. I'm not putting everybody down. We have some wonderfully trained people, people that know a lot, people have a great experience, people understand the ethics, people understand best practice and do a wonderful job. The problem we have is that there's no credential that sh that will tell a potential client that they're talking to somebody who has uh, who. who who has that credential. And I think that one of the signs of the maturity of the philanthropy field in general, people who work in foundations, uh, people who are doing philanthropy advising, uh, I, that one of the measures will be when there is a credential, a philanthropy credential, not an investment credential, uh, not, uh, you know, not a, not a family, uh, not, not a family systems specialty, but a, but a philanthropy grant making expertise, a credential that, that shows that somebody at least can be guaranteed to know what we can considered to be the core competencies and the basic knowledge of the field. So I'm really hoping that we can move toward that, that we reach that level of maturity. Uh, after all, bet between the advisory work that we do and philanthropy itself, we're responsible for billions of dollars. We're responsible for an entire sector we're responsible for influencing public policy. We're responsible for helping determination of the, of, of 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 succession and 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 public priorities. We we owe it to, not only to the field of philanthropy, but we owe it to society as a whole to take seriously that that it matters what we know when we go into this field and when we start working with clients. Well said. Well said. What a great place to end and. Um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom and experience with us today, Richard. I really appreciate it. Well, Deborah, it's my pleasure and anytime. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you are a member of the Purposeful Planning Institute, I want to invite you to come post in the community forum and share your key takeaways from today's conversation. And if you're not a member yet, here's your invitation to join us and be part of our community and access the network resources, and tools you need to transform your client relationships and your practice. And don't forget to use promo code PURPOSEFUL to receive a 10% discount on a membership. Learn more at PurposefulPlanningInstitute.com.